Alright everyone, welcome back to the Didactic Mind Podcast. This is your host, Didact, and this is episode 62, Didactic Mind, episode 62, The Science Delusion. Very warm welcome, as always, to all of my long-time readers. Uh, if you have not subscribed to the site, please make sure you do so using the uh, sign-up link, both in the description box here on Podbean uh, or on my site. The episode will be mirrored on both, as always, so you can sign up using the, the links uh, as you please. Uh, if you hear a little bit of uh, static and rustling around, that's that's my jacket. Um, it's just uh, it's a bit cold where I am, so... Um, you know, just trying to keep a little bit warmer. Uh, it is winter, and the weather is extremely British outside. Um, very warm welcome to all my long-time listeners. If you are not a Podbean subscriber, please make sure you hit that subscribe button uh, on Podbean, and that way you will never miss a new upload. Um, I have a domain query uh, podcast due out soon, I think, in the next few days. Uh, to answer a question from an old friend and long-time reader. Um, that should be kind of interesting because it's a, it's a question about history. Alternative history, in fact. Um, but today I wanted to talk about uh, a few things. And um, I don't want to spend too much time talking about politics because there's a lot of that commentary around right now. And uh, I think... I don't really have much to add to it. I think that uh, what we saw on the Capitol on Wednesday, um, January 6th, was uh, challenging, no question. Um, I thought that the God Emperor handled the situation as well as he could have. He's gotten a lot of stick from his erstwhile allies, his fair-weather friends on the right, uh, for not telling the protesters to dis disperse, and disperse and go home which he did, in fact, and he told them to go in peace. Um, I've seen a lot of commentary, particularly from Vox Day and others, saying that this is all part of the plan. The God Emperor has a plan to fight back and, and you know, destroy the opposition. I've heard a lot more and seen a lot more black-pilled commentary from a lot of people, Breitbart um, and various other uh, supposedly right-wing news outlets, saying it's over. Uh, the Trump administration is going down in flames. It's defeated. Um, there's nothing left to defend. Uh, it's done. Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, I, I think that as Christians, as men of faith, we need to hold strong. We are being tested severely, and uh, many of us are failing these tests. Make no mistake that what is happening right now is the physical manifestation of a very real spiritual war. And if you read uh, John C. Wright's latest piece um, on his site, scifiright.com, you will understand what Mr. Wright means by the spiritual aspect of this war. And it is a, a, a very dreadful aspect. Uh, and it's a very difficult one for non-spiritual people to understand. I'm not claiming to be particularly spiritual myself. I'm just saying the what we see right now is merely the outward um, physical appearance of a much deeper and much more terrible war being waged in a realm that we cannot see and we cannot really understand as material beings. As for whether President Trump will still be president on January 20th, 
I believe he will be. Uh, I believe that the way that Biden is acting is not the way that a man who won a seven a, a landslide victory would act. I do not believe that uh, the Democrats are acting rationally at all. When I mean, when the Democrats basically say we're going to impeach a sitting president with in in twelve days, that's ridiculous. There's no way they can do it. They're going to impeach him after he's left office. Like, how does that make sense? How does it make sense to impeach somebody who's not going to be there anymore on January twentieth? It makes no sense. Maybe they're pandering to their base. Maybe not. I don't know. Mitch McConnell has already cocaine. Mitch has already agreed to go ahead with impeachment hearings. So something isn't making sense. Nothing is adding up in in standard narratives in standard ways. I think most people need to understand and keep in mind. We are watching the collapse of the American Empire before our eyes, and it's going to be very violent and very brutal. Um, this is not going to be the dissolution of the USSR. This is not going to be uh, a case where tanks open fire on the Duma, or you know, the American equivalent, tanks open fire on uh, on the capital. Hopefully, nobody dies, but the whole empire just breaks apart into constituent states peacefully. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we are looking, staring down the barrel of an incredibly brutal absolutely terrifying, really bloody, horrible war, civil war, um, of the kind that we saw in the Balkans uh, when the former Yugoslavia split apart. And uh, you can still see the scars of that conflict to this day. I mean, Serbs, like Bosnian Serbs and Serbian Muslims and, you know, uh, Croatians and, and, and all these other Albanians and so on and so forth, they won't even spit on each other let alone speak to each other. They, they can't stand each other. I mean, Croatians are hardcore Christians. Um, uh, you know, Bosnians and Serbs and, and, and so on. The, the, the ethnic melange and mix is so complicated that it's impossible to figure out um, who's doing what and uh, where and how. And it's, it's very strange, uh, the situation that's going on in 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 the U.S. right now. It's a very, very weird um, uh, problem and, and setup that we have. So, you know, what are you going to do? What are you, um, what are you going to, uh, what are you going to stand for and what are you going to achieve in the near future? Well, who knows? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the near future. I really don't. Uh, but you have to pick a side. You, you have to pick where you stand. And you may not like, you're probably not going to like what happens. The U.S. is fracturing along racial, political, and socioeconomic lines. Um, these forces have been on the move for decades. The American nation, which is primarily a white nation, has been under sustained assault since at least 1965, maybe earlier. And um, a nation which used to be 90% white, very homogeneous, uh, very Christian, and is now maybe 60% white, barely nominally Christian, and probably not even that much, and um, is forced to live alongside races which do not share its ideals or beliefs, is not sustainable. So 
be prepared for that. Be ready for what is coming. And what is coming is going to be pretty horrific. Which brings me on to uh, one other point that I want to address quickly within a few minutes. Big tech censorship. Um, big tech has made very clear that they believe themselves now to be above and beyond the U.S. government. Uh, if you are still reliant upon Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, uh, a whole host of other big tech platforms to get your product to market and get things done, you're a fool. You're a damn fool. Uh, you cannot rely on these people. Now, I am an Amazon affiliate. I make no secret of that. But here's the thing. I don't depend on Amazon for my livelihood. I don't depend on Google for my communications. I don't depend on Facebook for my ability to stay in contact with people. I actually, I mean, I had a Facebook account under my real name, and um, I just don't use it. I refuse to use it. I have never registered with Twitter. I just do not support these platforms. I do not want to support them. Um, if you if you have your own Blogspot or Blogger um, blog, get it off Blogger. Uh, Blogger is the least converged probably part of Google and has been for some time. Uh, Google knows well enough not to dick with uh, Blogger uh, and generally doesn't, fortunately. But that's going to change in the near future. Google already believes itself to be your master. If you depend on Facebook for advertising and ad revenue, get off Facebook. You're, you're going to take a, probably a 90% drop to your ad revenue in the near future, but get off Facebook. If you depend on Twitter to get your messaging out and generate controversy and interest, get off Twitter. You're going to get kicked off sooner or later. These people hate you, so stop supporting them. Create your own platforms, create your own networks. If you have um, a, a site that you want to build, then put it on self-hosted servers and build it up that way. Uh, if you are logging into the internet, make sure that, I mean, if you, are, if, you, if you are doing what I do, which is basically posting dissident content uh, anywhere in the Western world to a Western audience, you need to cover your tracks. So get yourself a VPN. You can use um, Surfshark, which is probably the best value VPN out there. And uh, you can also use Goose VPN. I'll have links to both in the description box. If you want to build your own self-hosted site, get yourself um, you know, A2 hosting. Uh, works great. That's what I use. I highly recommend it. And if you want to build a really beautiful looking site, use, um, use Elegant Themes. Their Divi plugin is, I think... Probably the best in the market, um, although Thrive Themes might have a few things to say about that. But, uh, you know, I'll have links to all of this stuff. I mean, if you want to build your own site, get yourself a domain name, get yourself a hosting package, get yourself a theme, and then get yourself a VPN. I'm going to have links to all of that in the description box here and on Didactic Mind. Everything is there anyway already. You just go to support the, uh, support the, the War College, click on that link, and it'll take you to all of the affiliate links that I have. But the point is, make sure that you're trying to get your own platforms set up. Support people who already build alt tech platforms. You know, support unauthorized TV from our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord. Peace be unto him, Vox Day. Um, support the 
alt tech revolution. If you must use a free service to get your message across, join Gab if you want. Don't bother with Parler because Parler is, is just a gatekeeping organization. Uh, sign up for Social Galactic. Sign up for unauthorized TV. Uh, support BitChute. Get your own uh, cryptocurrency going. Um, if you want to learn how to mine cryptocurrency, I mean, most cryptocurrency miners right now are completely sold out of, uh, of, of crypto. But uh, they will open back up eventually, and when they do, you know, ping me for affiliate links. I have, I can, I can get you discounts for cryptocurrency. Take the steps necessary to secure your independence right now. If you don't, you're going to be in very, very deep trouble when the crackdown really comes. And it's, it's only just started. It's going to get much worse. I expect at some point Google will probably come and shut down my Gmail account um, and probably my access to YouTube. And that's fine. You know, it's 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 not going to cripple me in any way, because I already have alternatives that I can use. I already have the ability to move away from that stuff. I'm not dependent upon these people. I'm not dependent upon these assholes at all. So make sure that when the time comes, you are anti-fragile. If you don't, you're going to get sucker punched. And um, I'm just trying to prepare you for that. Okay. So, um, that's enough of that, enough doom and gloom. Um, let's switch gears and address the, the real topic of this podcast, which is, um, as, it says, as the title says, the science delusion. And really, I want to focus on what science is, um, and it's not what everyone thinks it is, it's not what we're taught in school, it's not uh, what public scientists do today, that's for damn sure. And it's not a universal, perfect way of learning about the world around us. Um, I think it's high time we stopped pretending that science can answer all questions, because it cannot. Uh, and I think it's high time we stopped elevating scientists to the position of gods, because they are not. So, first question is, what is science? Um, and the answer to that is not what most people think it is. Um, science is not one monolithic concept. It is, in fact, four different um, ideas combined into one. Science as a field is... If science, the noun, is just a generic noun, but it, it actually contains... Well, it used to be three, and now is more like four subfields or subcategories. And again, with respect to this definition, many thanks to our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord. Peace be unto him. Vox Dei. Science is actually more properly understood as scientage, scientotti, scientistry, and now, of late, unfortunately, scientism. What is scientage? Scientage, scientage is the uh, available body of transparent, testable knowledge. What is an example of that is, um, you know, the the, uh, the the speed and properties of light, or uh, the ways in which um, hydrogen atoms react with oxygen to create water. 
uh, or what is you know the do plots grow better listening to when you play Mozart uh, during the germination phase and stuff like that okay these are testable ideas you can test them you can uh, you can attack them you can uh, deny them uh, here's a testable idea that is scientifically testable and provable hypothesis the sky is blue how do you test it you stick your head out the window what do you what happens if you see that the sky isn't blue your hypothesis is wrong you have to come up with a better theory since every time we look up the sky is basically blue during the day we can conclude with an extremely high level of confidence that the sky is blue now why is the sky blue okay that's a slightly different question so a subtly different question and for that you need scientology scientology is the scientific method the scientific method is best explained in a beautiful video by the late great physicist uh, Richard Feynman who worked on the Manhattan Project and is, it's a it's a black-and-white video I think uh, it was filmed when he was a professor at Caltech and he was ex it was at Caltech or MIT I forget uh, but at any rate he he was explaining to a class what the scientific method is um, and he, essentially he said uh, it doesn't matter if you have a theory it doesn't matter how beautiful your theory is it doesn't matter how elaborate how elegant it is but if you test it if you if you test it using a a proper method against the facts if you test it and the facts prove your theory wrong it doesn't matter how beautiful it is doesn't matter how elegant it is doesn't matter how good it looks how nice it sounds it's wrong and that's all that's it needs to be discarded Here's a great idea of uh, a theory that is wrong. The universe has always existed in a steady state. Perfect example. That was a theory that uh, existed for decades and even centuries in most parts of the world. Most philosophical systems and most religions and most uh, scientific uh, uh, paradigms accepted as a matter of faith or as a as an article of faith uh, or as a given as a article of faith is probably too strong a term but as a given fact of life that the universe was a steady state it had always existed uh, you can see this you know beyond matters of science you can see it in matters of philosophy and religion uh, if you go back to the old Norse sagas um, if you look at the way the Norse creation myths unfolded, they said that in you know uh, throughout all of eternity there was the vast yawning emptiness of Ginungagap, and in the north was um, was uh, Jotunheim, uh, sorry uh, Niflheim, and in the south was Muspelheim. Uh, Muspelheim, the land of fire, and Jotun, uh, excuse me, Niflheim, the land of ice and cold. Now, exactly how they came up with these ordinates, given that, you know, they were basically saying there was nothing, a vast expanse of nothingness. They were obviously thinking only in two dimensions, but anyway. Um, and sometime, at some point, the, 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 the intense cold from the north and the intense heat from the south created this, uh, this, this first primordial cow. Um, and from there, life sprang forth and, so on and so forth, and there's a great tree named 
uh, Yggdrasil, which gets involved somewhere. I'm, I'm being terribly uncharitable to the Norse legends. I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff. It's actually really interesting to, to explore the Norse legends, the Norse creation myths. But the, the thing that was taken for granted was that the, there was something eternal about the universe. There was, there was an eternality about it. There was no beginning and there's no end state in mind. Uh, the same is true of Hinduism. Hinduism assumes a steady universe that kind of go, comes and goes in uh, cycles. There are four stages, uh, four yuga, four cycles, basically, of existence. And, you know, existence just repeats infinitely through these cycles. What makes first Judaism and then Christianity unique is that in the Bible, it says very clearly, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. So there was a beginning. God created. Uh, and by the way, for the, just parenthetically, for those who don't believe, as, I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm a little bit skeptical about the concept of the Trinity. Not as much as I once was. Um, but for those who think that the Trinity doesn't exist in the Bible, it absolutely does. Um, if you read the original Hebrew, You'll, you'll realize that uh, uh, he, what was it, uh, Elohim is the, is the word used to describe God. Eloi is the singular. Uh, Eloha is the plural for two. And Elohim is for three or more. So it's a, in, in Genesis 1 1, the Creator is a masculine plural character. So it's a multi-entity character that does the creating. Food for thought. So anyway, that is where we get this concept of a beginning to the universe. Now, up until the 20th century, it was very difficult to find any evidence whatsoever in creation for a beginning. We didn't have the tools. We didn't have the ability to figure this out. Um, and for, what, 2,000 years, more or less, philosophers and scientists were at odds with each other because the philosophers or the, the religious philosophers, the religious scholars said, according to the Bible, the universe had a beginning. And the scientists said, according to science, the universe had no beginning. It's just always existed. Uh, Fred Hoyle was the great proponent of the steady-state universe idea in the, in the mid-20th century. He was deeply skeptical of the idea of a Big Bang. But then more and more and more evidence just started coming together, showing that, in fact, the universe had a beginning. Uh, Einstein's uh, field equations uh, showed that under specific, uh, under, you know, current conditions, there had to be some sort of beginning because the universe kept expanding outwards. And Einstein himself called, he, he, he didn't want to believe in an expanding universe. He wanted to believe in a steady state universe. So he plugged in this thing called the cosmological constant into his field equations. And he calibrated his cosmo cosmological constant so that the field equations described a universe that was steady. 
and he later called that the single biggest mistake of his entire life. Uh, now, Einstein is not quite the hero everyone thinks he is. He's, it's, uh, it's, it's well known within the scientific world that he was a bit of a plagiarist. But it was the work of Einstein, uh, Georges Lemaitre, uh, Belgian, I think, priest, uh, Edwin Hubble, uh, the guys who discovered cosmic background radiation, uh, Will Wilson and Penzias, I think. Uh, Penzias was definitely one of them. I forget the other guy's name. Um, all of this evidence started accumulating, showing that, in fact, the universe was expanding outwards. So, if it's expanding outwards, then surely that means you can trace backwards through time and get to the very beginning of the universe. You can get to a point where the expansion had to start. And that's when the steady-state theory finally died. And people realized, we can't support this anymore. The evidence says it's not supportable. So the steady-state universe went away. And today, the standard model of cosmological physics, and the standard model of physics, basically, says the universe started with something called the Big Bang, which was a an incredibly, an unimaginative, unimaginably powerful explosion of energy radiating outwards from a point of infinite density, uh, a singularity, essentially. And everything we see around us today is a result of the unleashing of all of that energy back then. So Scientology, the scientific method of observation, inference, and testing, gets us to that conclusion. And it's an incredibly powerful method. It's a, a, a very, very powerful way of observing physical reality. It gives us some amazing tools. Um, the scientific method is such that if we see even one observation in reality that contradicts something we believe, we have to discard that belief. We have to discard that hypothesis. So if we see one observation that violates Maxwell's equations, we have to discard Maxwell's equations. If we see one observation that violates um, Einstein's law of relativity, which is essentially an expansion upon Newton's laws of gravity, then or laws of motion, I should say, actually. Um, it's a superset of Newton's uh, laws of motion then we have to discard Einstein's theories. Um, if we see one observation that disproves um, any part of quantum physics, like if we are able, for instance, to successfully predict where uh, a subatomic particle will be and how fast it's moving, we have to discard a whole bunch of uh, ideas in quantum physics. I mean, the whole field will just be wrecked. Um, but we haven't seen that in thousands upon thousands of experiments. We simply have not seen that. So we can be quite confident that these things are true. That's the scientific method. You can never be 100% certain about anything, but you can be pretty certain. You can be 99.999% certain after a, you know, after a certain amount of time. So where does this leave us? Well, you would think that the people who do science are unbiased users of Scientage and Scientology. They are not. 
Scientistry is the profession of science, and this is very different from what you and I think of or were taught is science in school. That's not what scientists do is not the scientific method. What scientists do is every bit as subject to human corruption and politics and interference uh, and skullduggery as anything else that humans do. Because what scientists do is much more than just conducting experiments in a lab. Scientists also have to secure funding. They also have to go out and chase grants. They have to uh, acquire money so that they can do what they want to do. They can focus on the experiments that they want to focus on. This is why scientists are every bit as susceptible to corruption and malfeasance as anyone else. Uh, most people don't remember this case. I remember it from back in, I think, about 2002, 2003, something like that. A, excuse me, a very prestigious Korean uh, scientist, South Korean scientist. Forget exactly what his name was. I'll have to go look up the article. Um, but I remember he, he had gained you know, tremendous uh, plaudits and, and acclaim and, 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 uh, and, uh, honors for his work in the field of cloning. And he generated, you know, tremendous publicity. I mean, he was a, like a national hero in South Korea. It turned out eventually, transpired that an investigation discovered he'd actually falsified a bunch of his results. He just made shit up blatantly. Why did he do it? Because it helped him secure money. It helped him secure funding. This is not unusual in the world of science. It is not unusual for people in the scientific field to fudge a bit and promise or look at things and say, we're going to get amazing results if we just get such and such amount of money uh, they have to market their research just like everybody else has to market our skills. You're not listening to me because you just, well, I mean, you may have happened to come across my work randomly, but the probability of that is extremely low. More likely, you did a search for something on the internet. You saw my podcast come up because it has a related keyword. You gave it a listen and you thought, huh, this guy is kind of an asshole, but he's got a nice voice, so I listen to him. That's a possibility. Uh, or you are just a long-time reader of my site, you like my material, you like my point of view, you want to hear more of it. Or you can't stand me and you want to attack me for whatever reason. Either way, you are engaging with me because of something that I have done to put myself out there. It's not that, you know, I'm not some wise, disinterested philosopher just rambling on and, um, and you're coming across me because you think I'm, I'm, I'm wise and amazing. And people who buy, uh, products through my Amazon affiliate links aren't doing so out of the goodness of their hearts. They're doing so because I'm marketing stuff for them. And then maybe they see something else that they want, so they go buy that. So this, this idea of disinterested, wise philosopher kings that we get from Plato, um, is nonsense. It, it doesn't apply in the real world. Uh, people, scientists are just as um, politically motivated and politically active as anybody else. So don't 
ever let anyone else tell you differently. Don't ever fall for that lie. It's absolute garbage. So where does that leave us in the modern day? Well, if you accept that scientists have a profession called scientistry, and they use scientotty on scientage to accomplish that end, that's fine. You can sort of kind of live with that. Yes, scientists get things horribly wrong from time to time, um, and with sometimes catastrophic results, uh, absolutely catastrophic results. Here's a great example of a catastrophic result. Um, for decades, doctors in the medical field went to medical school and were told by their professors, if you give patients opioids, uh, op, opi, yeah, opioids, opiates and opioids are, are um, related uh, drugs, but one is illegal and the other is not, essentially. Uh, but opioid pain medication. Uh, if you look at uh, the world's most popular uh, medications for severe pain, if you look at uh, Oxycontin, um, uh, coat, uh, Oxycontin, uh, uh, um, what's it called? Uh, Vicodin, and uh, there's one that starts with a C. I forget what it's called. It Maybe codeine, um, but at any rate, there are three or four drugs which are like really, really, really powerful painkillers. You wouldn't know it if you didn't do some research, but they are all derived from the sap of the poppy seed, just like, lo and behold, heroin. They come from the same source. These drugs, which are wonder drugs, I mean, these are, I'm not knocking the use of uh, high-powered painkillers because these things are amazing and incredibly useful, um, but they are also dangerous. They're derived from the same family as one of the most addictive and dangerous drugs, uh, illegal drugs in the world. But medical doctors would go into medical school and they would be taught by their professors, if you give your patients these drugs, they will not be addicted. The Surgeon General of the United States, a future Surgeon General, um, I mean, he, he, was, he, he was talking about his experiences in medical school, this guy became the Surgeon General and then retired uh, eventually and was talking after he was Surgeon General uh, on some talk show or TV show. And he said, this is what I learned in medical school. That decision or that, that mistake was incredibly costly in terms of people's well-being and health and the, the health and well-being of their families. That's a colossal error, and we know it's wrong. We know today it's absolutely wrong. Why did they come to that conclusion? Because part of it was because these doctors were given tremendous incentives by drug companies not to talk about how dangerous um, their their drugs are. Even though, I mean, people could see that, that, that drug addiction rates were skyrocketing among people with access to legal prescriptions for painkillers. Uh, another dirty little secret of the medical industry. Again, these are supposedly disinterested, wise scientists. No, they're not. They have significant financial interests in this stuff. Um, SSRIs. Uh, these are um, basically very, very powerful drugs for depression and anxiety. If you take depression medication, and I know this from um, not direct first-hand experience, thank God, 
but one of my family members, like my, my granddad basically, um, used to take very, very powerful antidepressants. Uh, that stuff affects your brain chemistry. And if you try to go off of them cold turkey, that's like, it's the worst thing you can do. Um, a number of medical professionals who have kind of broken out of that field will admit that. They will tell you, don't ever go cold turkey with this stuff. It will kill you. And that's what happens. People die from the overwhelming crash that they get from coming down off of that uh, serotonin high, from, from taking an SSRI. They really, really crash. And this is, it's devastating to watch. It's, it's horrifying. Um, these, these are secrets that people don't want to talk about. I mean, and now it's public knowledge, but it used to be secret. Again, supposedly disinterested, wise, capable scientists were suppressing this information. They weren't talking about it in public. They didn't want to talk about it in public. It was too dangerous to talk about because it would have threatened their financial interests. Now we've got something that's even more dangerous than that, than scientistry. So, you know, always be skeptical of scientists. Don't just accept what they tell you just because they say it. Um, we now have something even more dangerous than that called the replication crisis. The replication crisis, uh, or the, rep the reproducibility crisis, it's known by a number of, a couple of different names, is one in which some of the most well-known results in multiple fields of scientific achievement and exploration can no longer be replicated. Some of the most famous published papers are coming under heavy scrutiny and people are saying, we can't reproduce these experiments. We can't, when we apply the scientific method, scientology, to scientage, because these represent part of scientage, these are published papers, peer-reviewed, journal-reviewed papers, we can't reproduce what the papers are saying we should. Here's a really simple example in psychology. Now, psychology I consider to be a joke, but as a, as a general rule, um, psychology is kind of a joke science, but there is some good research that goes into psychology. Uh, behavioral economics, which is one of the most exciting fields in economics and probably one of the ones that is most relevant to the modern day, springs out of psychology. And behavioral economics has some very powerful findings which really challenge a lot of the mainstream assumptions of economics, so it's worth exploring. But anyway, one of the most uh, simple assertions in psychology is that smiling will automatically make you feel better personally. Uh, just just smiling, just you know, even if you don't feel like you're happy, just smiling, the act of smiling will raise your mood. That conclusion has been challenged. Something as simple as that, scientists can't agree on and can't reproduce anymore. When you start when you when you get to that point and then you get to the point of scientism which is where we simply uh have a dogma of science no longer we don't even have a profession of science anymore we have a dogma of science then you've got a huge problem the the way to understand scientism is probably best illustrated by a book called foundation by isaac asimov um in which uh, I won't go into too many of the details, but basically, uh, there's this, there's this, um, kind of planet of, uh, at the, at the edge of the known galaxy, uh, at the very edge of the known galaxy during the downfall, like the, the, the decline and fall of the galactic empire, 
which has lasted for 12,000 years. And this uh, very famous and controversial psychohistorian, basically a mathematician slash psychologist named Hari Selden, sends 100,000 uh, men, women, and children to this planet called Terminus, right at the arse end of the galaxy, to preserve the knowledge of the dying empire, ostensibly. And uh, 50 years later, uh, you know, there's a, a major galactic crisis, and uh, this, this one tiny little planet with no resources, almost no metal whatsoever, just a lot of scientific genius on it, uh, is the only part of the entire outlying periphery which has access to nuclear power. And the mayor of Terminus at that time realizes, hey, we've got something incredibly valuable here. So he, uh, he goes to the, the, the four big kingdoms surrounding him, which are now decaying into barbarism and backwardness. And he says to them, uh, come and send your best minds to our planet, and we will teach them uh, how to uh, maintain these holy relics. Because he basically realizes he's got an opportunity here to turn science into a religion. So he creates a class of tech priests who come from these four kingdoms, and that's how this one planet, this one tiny little planet called Terminus, maintains control over these vast kingdoms around it. Um, that's kind of the situation we have today, where ordinary people aren't really using their brains anymore. They're not educating themselves as to what science is. They're not trying to understand that there's a huge problem with the science. They keep, you, you hear it around you all the time. Trust the science. Trust the data. Trust the evidence. Trust the scientists. Okay. Let's examine the science. Let's, let's put it out there for public consumption. No, 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 no. You don't need to bother yourself with the actual evidence or the data. No, you just have to trust the government scientists of the SAGE, the, the, the scientific advisory or whatever it's called in the UK. I forget exactly. I don't, I don't know what the acronym is. Um, you can go look it up. But SAGE, I mean, that, the fact that they're using that acronym uh, to pretend as though the government's advisors know what they're talking about, that should tell you a lot. But we've gotten to the point where people who should be literate, at least, in, and skeptical, at least, about the science aren't skeptical about it. They just blindly accept what scientists tell them. That is scientism. It's the reduction of science into dogma. And it's affecting every single level of our society. And this is a huge problem. I'll give you another very good example of scientism as a dogma and why it's a problem. The theory of evolution by natural selection. I've talked about this in previous podcasts. Um, the evidence against the Darwinian story of evolution is so overwhelming right now that you cannot possibly believe that it's true. The Darwinian theory of evolution essentially says that every form of life that we have today, all of the vast complexity of life that we have today, comes down to a single common ancestor. And through incremental gradual change uh, and adaptation, mutation, um, and so on, uh, we see multiple different forms and kinds branching outwards into this vast tree of life. That's not what we actually see. The theory doesn't work. The gradual change into different forms 
doesn't exist in the fossil record. And Darwin knew this all the way back when he wrote his book the Orig on the origin of the species. He knew it. And he said in the book, I, this is my, you know, he, uh, Stephen Meyer talks about it in a, in a book called Darwin's Doubt. And um, Darwin himself said, uh, the f essentially, here are the conditions that will disprove my theory. So he was, I mean, for all the controversy generated by Darwin, he was a real scientist. He was a real scientist because he said, this is how you disprove my theory. That's what a real scientist does. So he said this, and then we looked at the evidence over you know, the next 150 years, and what do we see? Well, we see that at the microscopic or the micro level for micro changes in terms of uh, micro adaptations in terms of beak sizes of finches, let's say, Darwin's theory works. There's no question about it. Evolution, we see evolution is true. There's no doubt about that. Evolution absolutely does happen. Changes over time does happen, do happen. We see relationships between different organisms and different life forms. We see uh, that adaptation to, to different circumstances do happen at a, micros at, a, at a relatively small scale level. That is true. We do see natural selection. Natural selection is a fact. No one's arguing with that. I said so as, you know, I said as much in my previous podcast about it. Natural selection is a fact. You can observe it in a laboratory. You can create conditions that are adverse to life uh, at, a at a bacterial level, and um, you'll kill off a whole bunch of bacteria, you know, 95%. Let's say you, uh, you have a petri dish full of bacteria or fungus, and you dump in a very powerful antibiotic or a very powerful antifungal drug, and you'll kill off 95, maybe even 99% of everything that's in that petri dish. Okay. The little remainder of whatever, you know, gunk, or um, uh, slimy little organism is left, will adapt, probably, and will come back stronger. And if you keep doing this, if you keep applying that same external shock over multiple generations, eventually you are going to get a, uh, an evolved or changed version of that same organism but it's still the same organism. Evolution by natural selection is nothing more than a theory, and a very bad theory at that. You do not see cats becoming dogs and dogs becoming cats. You, need, you do not see... I mean, there's a lot of argument about this in the scientific community. There's an argument that uh, about 50 million years ago, um, a dog-like creature uh, sort of adapted to coastal conditions and became the progenitor of the... Uh, modern whales? Well, no, uh, because we now have a fossil found, there's a fossil found uh, fairly recently, apparently, which predates that dog-like ancestor. So you cannot have a new form that predates its ancestor. It doesn't, logically, it doesn't make sense, obviously. So the theory doesn't work, and it keeps breaking down, breaking down, breaking down. Um, it doesn't matter where you look at the Darwinian theory of evolution, whether you look at the Cambrian explosion where life just literally exploded outwards. I mean, it was, we went from no life to huge diversity of life 
in geological in, in in terms of geological timescales, it was instantaneous, more or less. How did that happen? Darwinians can't explain that. Well, they say, well, everything came out of a single-celled organism. Well, where did the single cell came, come from? Well, th this comes down to... Um, excuse me, I needed to wet my whistle. This comes down to your standard uh, sort of textbook explanation. Uh, well, there was kind of this primordial soup, this, uh, this stew of chemicals and amino acids and lipids and, and all of that combined to create... Um, primordial proteins, and then there's this like flash of lightning which electrified the atmosphere, and uh, there's a single-celled single organism just spontaneously appeared, and out of this uh, primordial ooze crawled eventually, you know, the very first bugs, and uh, well, not even that, first bacteria, then the first amoeba, then the first... Um, multicellular, multi-cell uh, multi life forms and the first evolved into the first reptiles and fish and plants and, and, and so on and so forth. It's all garbage. Because if you talk to any real serious synthetic organic chemist, and you can watch um, Dr. James Tour's lectures on this stuff, there's a phenomenal lecture where he basically just rips apart the entire concept of life from non-life. Uh, where he, he poses some incredibly complex, detailed, and challenging scientific questions. He doesn't even bring the Bible into it. And you'll notice, I haven't mentioned the Bible outside of the book of Genesis earlier on. When it comes to evolution, I haven't talked about the Bible. I'm not interested in talking about the Bible with respect to this question, at least not yet. Everything that Dr. Tour says comes down to how do you get the right ingredients for life? Is it even possible, mathematically possible, for you to arrange all of the structures in the right way, in the right place, at the right time, under the right conditions, with the right temperatures? The, the mathematical challenges to, to Darwinian theory alone of spontaneous creation are mind-boggling. I mean, the probability of a random process figuring out where to put all of the lipids, uh, amino acids, uh, and all of the other kind of building, you know, chemicals and temperatures and everything else that you need in order to construct just a simple protein, just a protein, are so complicated. And, and, and like the, the mathematical probability against it is so great that it might as well be zero. The possibility of combining carbon dioxide or carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen into the right structures for a carbohydrate that folds in the right way, that becomes the right structure with the right covalent bonds, that adapts or that, that, that forms in the right process and doesn't waste away, that doesn't, you know, just break down because the reactions keep going. Like there's, there's, there's nothing to stop the reaction of a carbohydrate from forming. There's nothing to stop it from uh, caramelizing, basically, as Dr. Tour says. It, the, 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 the process involved is so mind-bogglingly complex. How, do, how does an unintelligent, you know, completely blind watchmaker process do that? Mathematically speaking, it's simply not possible. Darwinians always come back and say, well, time is our great ally. 
Okay, let's put that to the test. If you look at a field called population genetics, um, which looks at how long it would take for one species to evolve into another, population genetics is one of the great weaknesses of Darwinian theory now. Population genetics has made very clear that the amount of time required for mutations to fix into a life form and become prevalent for beneficial mutations to fix and become prevalent is far greater than the timescales we actually observe in the fossil record. Nothing about their story makes sense. And yet, the, the, the idea of challenging neo-Darwinian synthesis as a scientific paradigm is inconceivable to most people. They're like, we can't do this. I mean, this is the accepted point of view because the, the great fear among neo-Darwinians is if you reject neo-Darwinian synthesis, then you have to go to intelligent design and creationism, and that's a terrible idea. Well, why is it a terrible idea? Nobody can explain. We have to bring God into it. So what? We have to bring God into it. Big deal. Um, but as atheists, as materialists, they reject the entire idea of God, and that's a very, very stupid way to do things. There's no conflict between science and faith, or at least there shouldn't be. Um, and that's this, this whole idea of conflict between science and faith that I think I'll have to leave to another podcast because it's just such a huge topic. Um, and I've addressed it a, a number of times already, but this issue of uh, scientific uh, inerrancy is ridiculous. It's every bit as ridiculous as uh, biblical absolutist inerrancy. Um, cre young earth creationists say that the, the earth was literally created in six days and the earth is literally 6,000 years old. Well, the evidence says otherwise. Okay, I mean, you know, let's not be, let's not say that it's 6,000 years old, but the timescales don't make sense for um, an earth that is billions upon billions of years old either. It doesn't, it doesn't really work. Um, the, the, the six days of creation in the Bible, are they literally six 24-hour days? Well, maybe not. I mean, maybe instead of six, let's not interpret it as strictly six days, let's interpret it as maybe ages, or, you know, six ages of creation. And once we get to that point, what's wrong with that? Like, what, where is the conflict between what the Bible says and what we observe? Because the Bible makes a number of very, very clearly testable predictions in the, in the creation account. And every single one of those predictions is observed in the actual uh, record. Um, if you go to look at uh, Genesis chapter 1, I mean, let's go look at it right now. Uh, Genesis 1, chapter 1. Uh, Genesis 1, um, where is it? Uh, Genesis 1, um, there's a specific thing. Ah, yeah, here we go. Uh, Genesis 1, um, verse 11 to 13. Okay. Uh, the earth sprouts vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit. Um, and this happens on the third day of creation, in the third age of creation. But the light doesn't appear on earth until the fourth day of creation. It says so in Genesis uh, uh, chapter 1, you know, verse 14. Let there be lights in the heaven, expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse, blah, blah, blah. 
And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Uh, set them in the heavens and so you know. And uh, so the light from the sun and the moon appears on earth on the fourth day of creation. What does that correspond to in the geological record? Something called the Great Oxidation Event. The earth's atmosphere was vastly thicker back then, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, than it is today. The Great Oxidation Event got rid of much of the CO2-dominant atmosphere and replaced it with oxygen. So today, I mean, we have an atmosphere that is, what, roughly 70% nitrogen, 20-25-something percent, 22% um, oxygen, um, and the rest is like carbon dioxide and uh, trace gases. So we don't have a whole lot of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. Um, and that's good. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, Earth is very finely tuned for life. If the proportion of car if the proportion of oxygen was higher than 30% or something like that, um, it's a, there's a book I'm reading right now called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And a lot of my arguments or a lot of my points that I'm raising here come from that book. Um, if the proportion of oxygen in Earth's atmosphere was a bit higher than it is now, you know, maybe 10 percentage points, we'd all spontaneously combust. We'd all catch fire and die instantly. Um, if the proportion of oxygen was a bit lower, around about 15%, we'd all suffocate. Earth's atmosphere is very finely tuned just for us and everything around us to live. Science can't tell us why that is. Science, can't, science alone cannot tell us why the Earth and the universe around us are so pe peculiarly finely tuned for life. Science alone cannot tell us why the universe began. See, the thing, I, I want to leave off with this, this thought. Science is the, the scientific method, scientotti, the scientific body of knowledge, scientage, and even scientists doing scientistry are all great at explaining how we get to where we are and how we can get to the future. They're great at explaining the how. They're absolutely useless, in general, at explaining the why. For that, you need philosophy and you need faith. And therein lies the rub. You cannot depend on scientists to answer the why. But that's exactly where we have gone with scientism. We are assuming that scientists know the why, and they don't. They have too much to use a quote from the worst, uh, or second worst, actually, Star Trek show of all time. They have so much uh, sheer effing hubris that they think they have the answers, and they really don't. They're just blind men and fools pretending that they have the why, and they don't have a clue. They really don't. So let us stop deluding ourselves that scientists have all the answers. Let us stop pretending that there is a war between reason and faith. The two are complementary. They are not opposed. And let us stop putting our faith in men who cannot explain the way the universe works particularly well can't even if they can't even explain how the universe works particularly well you can't really explain expect them to explain why the universe works particularly well so let us take a step back let us stop venerating scientists as gods let us remember that they are merely 
human. And that's really all I want to say about it. Uh, it's time to end this podcast. So thank you very much for listening. Remember to like, share, comment, and subscribe. Make sure you stay away from big tech, uh, become independent, create your own platforms. And uh, as always, please remember to support my work. This is this has been Didact, and this was Didactic Mind, episode 63, The Science Delusion. And this is Didact, signing off.